Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today is Friday, Friday, Friday. It's May the 18th. May is over halfway over. The year is almost halfway over. It's going to be June like in a couple weeks. Summer is upon us. 2012, the last year on the planet. Please understand if you're a new listener, I am being, uh, what's the word? Sarcastic when uh, I say the world is going to end on December 21st, 2012. Actually, um, I just heard on the TV, I think it was on Russian Times. I don't remember where it was, but they just found some kind of Mayan ruin somewhere with a calendar that went well beyond uh, that date. So, hmm, I wonder, maybe somebody just got bored and quit working on the one calendar, but they picked up on it somewhere else. Anyway, the whole point of when I occasionally say, hey, like, the year's almost halfway over, or the year's a quarter of the way over, God forbid soon I'll be saying the year is three quarters of the way over, and we're getting ready to go into holiday shopping season and Thanksgiving and Halloween and all that good stuff. for the, you know, Get the families here at the end of the year, and you're going to be like, wow, it's almost gone. I do that. Because I believe that we need to be working on building liberty in our individual lives on a daily basis. And I try to put you in touch with the fact that time marches on and you're on a sliding scale. You're becoming either more empowered, more liberated, more independent, more self-sufficient, more self-reliant every single day of your life, or you're becoming less of those things. Those are your only two ways you can be headed. You're either getting deeper in debt or you're eliminating debt. Or you've already eliminated debt, it doesn't matter anymore. Now you're working on other areas. But there's no such thing as being static in your life. You're always moving along with time. And you're either going forward or sliding backward. And I want you to stay vigilant so you continue to slide forward. Today being Friday, of course, though, is a listener call day. This is where you've picked up the phone in the past week or three. Yes, I said week or three. And you dialed the numbers, 866-65-THINK. And when you call those numbers, you, uh, you leave me a message and you tell me what's going, you know, what your opinion is or your question is or whatever. You do it in two minutes or less. You do it from a quiet area. If you're on a cell phone, you do it with a good connection. And you leave me a message in about, I'd say, 30, 35% of those calls end up on the air. Uh, if you've called more than three weeks ago and you haven't heard your call on the air, uh, either you did something wrong, your call didn't make it through screening, or you just didn't make it based on a numbers thing and you might want to call again. That would be a pretty good running rule. If you don't hear your call within three Three weeks, you might want to try making the call again, because after about three weeks, I'm taking the newer calls. It's just how the screening process works. Before I get to your calls, though, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Uh, if you have a gun, and then you don't have any ammunition for it, do you know what you own? Great big heavy metal and wood or metal and plastic club. Very expensive one. You don't have a $1,250 AR-15 and you have no ammunition for it. You have a $1,250 club. Given you can go down to the sporting goods store and buy a good old-fashioned Louisville Slugger wooden baseball bat for about $20 bucks. If you're going to pay $1,200 for that AR or you're going to pay, you know, a couple hundred bucks for that SK or whatever it is, if you're going to put up real money, greenbacks for it, right, if you're going to do that, 
those uh, fiat currency notes that we use for, uh, for, for money right now, you're going to give those up for a gun, thinking maybe you should have some ammunition for it, and you should have more than like a box. Uh, and if you're going to do that, then you want to pay the best price you can so you can use that money, if you can call it that, to do other things. Like, oh, I don't know, plant a garden in your backyard, feed yourself, stock up on long-term storage food, have emergency supplies. I mean, we can only put so much of the budget into ammo, so we need to save money. What do we do to do that? We buy the ammo in bulk, we buy it from the, the price leader in the industry, and uh, we get lightning-fast shipping. We do that by going to BulkAmmo.com. Long-term sponsor of the show, been with us going into their second year now. No plans to leave. They love dealing with you guys. They do ship really, really quick, especially after your first order. Once they have your ID on, on file, people say, why do I have to fax a picture of my ID? Because it's ammunition. Uh, but once they have that, man, you order, and it's out the day you order it, and it's amazing that they keep such a great supply on hand at all times, given we're you know, kind of going into one another one of those ammo shortages, it seems like, for a variety of reasons. Uh, now might be a good time to stock up. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, MERS Radio. What is a MERS Radio? MERS Radio is like a walkie-talkie. Has a range of about one to two miles. If you are on top of a mountain and the conditions are perfect, it might go a lot further than that. But let's be honest, one to two miles. So it's really something for your neighborhood, uh, building complex or compound, your homestead, things like that. But then there's these motion detectors. Now, the motion detectors sit out wherever you want to put them, and they break into four sectors. You can have more than one detector in one sector. So you have a large sector, like a sector one, it's pretty large. You can put three sensors out, they're all set to sector one. Anytime something disturbs that area with motion or heat, you'll hear come across your walkie-talkie or your base station, alert sector one. Now you know something's out there. It could be a deer eating your corn. It could be a two-legged rat on your back porch. It could be the dog trying to get out of your yard if you live in a suburban yard. It's up to you what you want it to be, but that is awesome. Now here's how it's a force multiplier. We have this system. We have some remote cameras set up. Now, let's say that I wanted to go out onto our property to investigate something. We actually saw a person or a threat of some kind on our property with one of our remote cameras. My wife can sit inside our home safe, monitoring the cameras. I can put one of these radios on my side with an earpiece in. She can tell me what's going on. And the sector monitors can tell me what's going on. And with that earpiece, I'm in complete silent mode. So I have a force multiplier. I have multiple sectors with multiple monitors telling me when anything's moving from one sector to another. And I have somebody monitoring the cameras that's also aware of what's going on with the sectors that can feed me information. I don't know of another system that does that. Now, the cameras don't come with it. You have to do that on your own. I'm just trying to give you an idea of how much bigger of a deal MERS can be for you because having those sector monitors communicate with you is just like having observation uh, points out there where you have people telling you what's going on. All right, so I just wanted to maybe give you a little bit bigger view of what MERS is really all about today. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And remember to check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, and if you uh, are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps active duty or prior service, Please uh, go ahead and uh, email me before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you do or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. And I will send you a special discount code and thank you for your service. All right, so that wraps up the housekeeping. I do have some special announcements today. Number one, 
We've been running a contest for my speech if I wanted to save America. There's been three entries. One came in a little late, but that's okay. There are three great entries. They're on the form. I'll put a link to that thread in today's show notes today so you can start looking at it. I'm going to extend the deadline for the contest until Monday. Monday we're going to start voting. If there's only these three, we'll vote on these three. They're really, really awesome videos that were done. And I'll what I'll do is I'll start a new thread with just the entries with no feedback for voting on Monday. But for now, we'll use the thread that's there. And if you want to get a video in for this contest, please go ahead and do it. Uh, there's full details on the site. I'll provide links today for last-minute entries. But the winner gets $100 bucks from me, plus I will donate $100 bucks in your honor to Bella Ministries. And once we've picked that video, what we'll do is have the winner reload the video up to their YouTube channel, brand new, out of the gate. We'll put together a, a, a like a viral marketing bomb, so we try to get it to popular. We'll run it maybe, let's say, on a Friday morning, and we'll get it circulated around and try to really blow it up. Uh, I think when you see what the three people have done, you'll you'll agree that they've really impacted you. I'm not going to say which one my favorite is. I don't want to sway the voting. I want this to be a truly democratic process, but... Uh, All three of them hit you in different ways, and it's really uh, it's really an honor that people did that. So I wanted you guys to know that. Next up, I want to let you guys know something. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it at the end, but we uh, I do have the number up for you guys to call in for the listener call show for episode 1000 to tell people how the Survival Podcast and the community and preparedness in general have changed the way that you're living and your life and the impact on you. There's two previous shows we've done like this. I'll put links to them in the show notes today so you can get an idea of what it's like if you haven't heard those. But the new number to call in, and I'll put out a post later today as well, this is a separate number from the Think Line. This is just for people to call in their testimonials for episode 1000. It's 866-691-5353. Again, 866-691-5353. If you know what to do with that number, you can go ahead and use it right now if you want to. But this is for episode 1000. Again, a post with the number in it will all be put out later today, so don't stress over writing that number down. I did want to give it out. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, the video, and some other things at the end of today's show. Uh, I want to leave you on a Friday once again feeling like you're ready to go out and kick ass in your own lives. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and start taking our calls. Uh, remember, if you want to make a call like this, it's 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. Call from a quiet area with a good signal. Make your point first. If you want to give me details about your question, ask the question, then the details. It'll go much better, I promise you. And let's take that first call. Hey, Jack, this is Scott. i got a question for you. Uh, how does a person who had a foreclosure and had, a, had to file Chapter 13 get reestablished to buy a house? I'm 28, married, and have been employed for 10 years with the same company. At 23, my younger brother and I refinanced my mother's house for her to put it in our names. She gave us a spill that she was going to lose it if we didn't, and since we lost our father six years earlier, we did it. At the time, everyone from the bank manager down to my mother said it would not affect us purchasing a home later. Well, guess what it did? She stopped paying, and since she still lives in the home, and her name was on the title and not on the... Um, loan, she wouldn't sell it and she didn't care. So I was just wondering what we can do to uh, get uh, get going again. My wife uh, has a good credit, okay credit, but um, she has a new job and her, in- her income does not allow her to qualify for a home mortgage for two years. Um, any guidance I can get, man. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. 
Well, it's a tough scenario, and I'm going to answer the question from two angles. I try to answer questions on this show so that it helps the caller and it helps helps everybody. And the best way I can do the help everybody part is to tell you what should have happened rather than tell you what to do after it, it went wrong. So I'm going to tell you how I would have structured this that I decided that I was going to help a family member in this capacity where I was going to basically be the holder of the mortgage and they were going to be the tenant in the property and they were going to have no direct responsibility to pay the mortgage and just live there. And if I was going to do this with my brother like you did or if I was going to do this alone, in any event, I would do it the same way. I would take complete and total full ownership responsibility rights for the house and it would become my house. The person living in the house would become my tenant with a lease-to-purchase option uh, with a very small accumulation of equity along the way, uh, equity accumulation that just underperformed the equity accumulation in the mortgage. What I mean is, let's say that the way the mortgage was designed, that 10 years into the mortgage, uh, that I had acquired an equity stake in the property of about 15%. It accelerates from there, but we'll just say it was 15% uh, based on the original loan value. So if it was a $100,000 house, I have 15% equity in the home, or $100,000 mortgage, I have 15% or $15,000 in equity in the home, uh, the tenant would have 10. That's to safeguard myself in case the property value falls. There would be an, a rental agreement signed between the tenant and myself as though they were not a family member completely in a business-like situation with the ability to evict and put a new tenant in. And if it's my own mother, tough shit. And with my mom, that's easy to do. But I understand with other people's moms, it may not be. I would have the mortgage payment sent to myself. I would be making the mortgage payment, and I would evict the person and put a new tenant in if I had to. Uh, that might sound harsh, but look what this lady did to this this, this young man. And how screwed this guy is now, and there's nothing he can do about it. And it's 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 very sad that it happened. So that's what I would have done to prevent the mess in the first place. It would have all been done uh, with complete legal contract. In essence, she would have sold me the house, and I would have held the house as a landlord. That's what happened. You just didn't structure it that way. So, uh, in fact, you probably could have stepped in at any time and, and acted as a landlord. It would have been easier with a lease arrangement and things like that. That way, if she got to the point that I can't pay the bills, Mom, go find a smaller place to live. I'll get a tenant. Or I'll move in and take occupancy. But you needed that right, and you didn't have it. So now now it's over. The house is gone. You filed Chapter uh, 11 or 13 or whatever it was that you filed. I don't remember which one you said, but you filed bankruptcy. You're screwed, basically, for seven years after the filing. And there's not really a good way out of it other than lots of money. So... I'm going to give you two ways to do this. Number one, start saving your ass off. Cut every expense and get enough money for a huge down payment. If you wanted to buy a $150,000 house right now and you walked in with fifty k in cash, they would probably give you the loan because that's a 33% down payment. Nobody does that, uh, especially in this day and age. And with good income and, and a letter explaining everything and going with a bank that underwrites its own mortgage, that's probably what it would take to buy a $150,000 house prior to the bankruptcy expiring. There are other loans, though. I don't know if this type of loan is still available. Uh, there is a gentleman named Kevin Miller who's on the radio all the time in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. He was a prior client of mine back when I was a... Uh, in the marketing uh, consulting world, I developed all the lead generation marketing for his company, TexasLending.com. 
one of the types of loans that they had available, I don't remember what it was called, but it worked this way. You could use the credit of one spouse and the income of the other spouse. And if that type of a loan is still available, it may be a solution to get you kind of out of the, of the woodwork and into a home a little bit quicker. So that's another way that you could do if that type of loan still exists. I don't know if you're in Texas. I think Kevin is only licensed in Texas. He may be licensed in other places. You may reach out to him and say, does that loan even exist? They would probably at least give you an answer and give you a referral to somebody in your own state. So that would be another way to do this. Another option would be owner financing. It's probably going to come with an extreme high cost. And that extreme high cost is uh, is something you probably want to avoid uh, because what I mean high cost is going to be an interest. And usually owner financing sounds great until you look at the back end. And usually it's something like, okay, well, it's you know X dollars for X years. It'll balloon payment on the end. So usually owner, owner's financing structures it so that after about 10 years, either you have to go get a loan from somebody else and pay them off in full, and hopefully you're cleaned up by then, Or they basically get to keep all your money and repossess the property. There's a lot of owner financing structure that way, so be very careful. Another option for you would be what I suggested you had set up for your mother, which is a lease to own. Those are difficult to find, but they can be found, and you might take the time to find that and continue to save money as well. Um, because coming in with a little bit of a down payment into a lease to own arrangement, let's say you came in with not the big, huge, you know, $50,000 down payment, but if you came into somebody with a lease to own option, uh, with a good ironclad contract, get a good real estate attorney to drop the contract. Don't trust the, the uh, landlord's contract. Make sure that it's, if they have one and that's fine, make sure it's reviewed by an attorney that has your best interest in heart. And uh, one thing you could do is say, look, you know, I just want a lease. I don't want to do lease or whatever. Hey, I'll give you five grand up front. But it goes 100% to equity. It goes 100% to the future purchase of the home. When we term the contract out, it may be seven years. And if you find a house you'd be happy to buy and stay in for longer than that, and you go into a lease-to-own lease agreement with a seven-year term, then by the time you get to the end of that seven-year term, you should have everything cleaned up from your bankruptcy and be able to finance the house, assuming the economy hasn't gone completely off the rails. That's another way we could do it. Another way we could do this is if we want to get out more into the country, we can look for a low-cost rental uh, with a decent piece of land and start working with a landlord there toward an eventual purchase. But if you want to stay conventional and just say, I want to be able to put you know 10% down and buy a house, um, none of these credit cleaners or anything like that are going to help you. You're looking at you know, seven years from the date of file, uh, actually from the date of judgment, the bankruptcy when it was finally closed, uh, until that's going to go away for you. If there's anybody out there that's a, uh, not somebody that thinks they know, but somebody that's a, an attorney that works in these matters that, that has an option that I haven't thought of, please email me. And let me know about that. And if uh, if I like your solution, maybe I'll set it up where you can call in uh, the thing, and we'll put you on like as a, a micro council member. You know, maybe you're somebody that we might use from the expert council eventually. But I don't know of any solution other than the ones that I've given you. For any of you that end up in a similar quandary where you want to help but you're not sure about it. The way that I suggested structuring it initially, have them sell you the house, put them in the house as a tenant with an agreement that they can buy out the mortgage whenever they qualify for a loan with some piece of equity going to you in return for it. And please charge them more in rent than your payments. Uh, and I mean interest and principal and uh, insurance and taxes. If, you're, if, you, if all of that on a piece of property is $800, you better be charging $950 minimum for rent. 
I don't care that they're a family member. I'm sorry about that. Remember, now you're a landlord. When they call you up and say the water heater needs to be replaced, you have to replace it. You need to do the saving that your responsible relative or friend couldn't do or they wouldn't have been in the situation in the first place. And I would avoid it at all costs anyway. I wouldn't even do it, but if I felt compelled to do it, that's the only way in which I would do it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Carney Princess from the forums. I was just listening to your tax day episode and uh, just wanted to let you know that from the time it took you to, uh, from the start of that list to the end of the list where you're rattling off all the taxes that we paid was um, I walked from the supermarket where I get my groceries all the way home from, from the time of checkout until I put the key in the door was how long it took for that list to go over, and that included uh, you know, waiting for walk signals at stoplights and all that. So just thought you'd find that amusing. Thanks. Bye. For, mo for those that might have missed it, on tax day I did a tax show and I read a list of all the taxes we pay. Not just income and Social Security and Medicare and all that, but fees and you know state, and in state income and property and all of the taxes. Phone taxes, uh, energy taxes, 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 taxes. And this is what this guy was able to accomplish while I read the list. So the next time one of your friends tells you, well, some people should pay more taxes, maybe you should inform them about how many taxes are already paid and stupid crap like, well, we need the Buffett rule because Buffett, Buffett, bullshit. Buffett pays a higher tax rate than just about anybody in America because he pays taxes as the owner of his corporation. They're talking about the taxes on his personal income, which, by the way, as a multi-billionaire is only about $500,000 a year and well-sheltered. If, if Buffett wants to pay more taxes, he could do it right now. He structured it to pay less on the personal because that's just smart performance. That's what we should all do. But uh, you heard it for yourself. That's what this, this guy was able to do while I just read the list of the taxes that we already pay. We're taxed enough, folks. Anybody that thinks we aren't, you're just not paying attention. Or maybe you're one of the few that aren't paying. But see, I don't even buy that because if you listen to that episode, that list, everybody's paying. Everybody's paying. The statement that half the people don't pay taxes is a lie. It's designed to put you at odds with your neighbor and create class warfare. Sure, half the people don't pay federal income tax, but go to the list and see all the taxes that they do pay. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is John in North Carolina. Uh, I had followed one of the links you provided in your shows to Dr. McCullough's website on uh, water filters. And in his article, he mentions uh, distilled water being very bad, uh, which led me to do a little bit of research uh, on distilled water. And I found everything from uh, it draws minerals out of your body and can be dangerous to uh, the United States Navy, uh, distills seawater for the soldiers, and that's a process that's done in arid countries uh, where they are, where drinking water is at a minimum. They're uh, distilling seawater for their population. So, uh, I guess my question is, in a survival situation or long-term trying to uh, collect water for collapse or whatever we're trying to gather our water for, uh, would distilled water be something that we need to consider remineralizing, or is this a case of uh, where, like with uh, the uh, rabbit starvation, you know, you're not getting enough fat, you'll get fat somewhere else, 
just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Uh, if distilled water is really all that bad, or if there's if it should just be avoided. Thanks, Jack. You know, here's what to keep in mind when you read an article on some, anything from a person like Dr. Merkula. I believe Dr. Merkula is a genius. I believe he's ahead of his time. I believe that there's an entire list of things that he was saying 10 years ago that everybody said, this guy's a quack. And today they all go, uh-huh, yeah, that's true. But all the other stuff he's saying makes him a quack, right? So I have a lot of faith in his methodology and his mentality and his procedure and the science behind what he's doing. I, I want to qualify that first. But the other side of it is he's also trying to go to the extreme of health. And if you have a choice between between drinking distilled water and, let's say, good quality water with lots of minerals in it, then you should drink the good quality water with lots of minerals in it. Duh! Um, can distilled water leach some minerals and other things from your body? Science tells us that it can, but it's minimal. If we are already in a nutrient-deprived state and we're existing on distilled water, it could be a problem. Would I turn down a glass of distilled water, especially if I was thirsty? No, it would probably save your life if you're nearing dehydration. Uh, is it like rabbit starvation? Probably worse. There's probably more truth to rabbit starvation than the dangers of distilled water. What Merkel is talking about is if you want optimum health, you know, if you want Andrew Weil optimized health, that type of thing, and you want to do the best you can for your body, avoid distilled water. Now, if you are in a place where that's the only source of water, just drink it and shut up, right? Remineralizing it, putting together a mineral mix that easily dissolves into water, uh, it would be a, 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 honestly, I would consider it a, a smart step. I don't see any problem with it at all, um, but I, I wouldn't sweat this one for a moment. I, I just wouldn't. Would I choose to drink distilled water on a daily basis with another option. No. Why? It's an easy choice. Would I rely on distilled water if I had a source of procuring it in a survival situation in a New York second? Ah, you thought I was going to say minute, didn't you? It's it's such an easy decision. I'll take it down to a New York second that I would I would choose distilled water over not drinking in any scenario under the sun. I, I would say that it's 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 probably one of those things to just shelve with the hey when I have a choice I'm going to go this way when I don't have a choice I'm not going to sweat it. You're probably more likely to have issues if you're drinking distilled water out of a jug with the plastic residues, which I'm not overly concerned about. Uh, I honestly not unless it's stored in a lot of heat or something like that. And you know, it's not something I do all the time. But if I have a bottle of water, I'm not gonna, you know, if I'm thirsty and I'm out at a facility or something and I don't have my own water with me and somebody hands me a, you know, an Ozark or something, one of those plastic bottles, I'm not gonna turn it down either. So I put it in that category. When you have the option, go other ways, but don't sweat it. Don't. And I think that's really more what he's saying. He does go on a little bit about it, but again, you're looking at a guy that's trying to optimize every component of health. 
And even the brilliant among them sometimes get a bit paranoid with stuff like that. So for filtration, I highly recommend his products if you don't have Berkey as an option. Uh, a couple of people called in after the, my response about that. And it was basically, what can I get if I can't get a Berkey? And suggested another alternative, which I found to be very uh, useful. But I'm not going to put four calls on air that say the same thing. So I'll tell you now. It's simple. You get a relative that lives in another state to order your Berkey for you. When it shows up, they slap a shipping label on it and mail it to you. Done. All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Lauren from Indiana, and I just listened to a segment on your listener call-in show where the Grouch was saying something to the effect of not using ethanol in your small engine. And he didn't exactly say that, but um, I, I guess I'm curious if uh, maybe you want to follow up with uh, the, the Grouch or Steve Harris about using ethanol in small engines like lawnmowers and so on and so forth, maybe uh, generators and stuff, because um, it just piqued my curiosity. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye. That's a good call, and I'm going to answer it myself because I'm done letting Tim from Old Grouch and Steve argue about ethanol. Uh, I think that we have two people polarized to both ends of that one, and I want to be the mediator in the be in the middle and explain the whole thing to you in a way that'll make sense and show you how both of them are completely right in their thinking. Ethanol is what we call hydroscopic, which would be the opposite of hydrophobic. Hydrophobic means repelling water. Hydroscopic means it'll pull water in. And that's why if we have a little bit of water in our gas tank and it's running rough, we can dump some of this treatment in there, and it all of a sudden it'll kind of dry it out, and it'll run better. And what is it? It's ethanol. We If we have water in a gas tank that's not bad enough to shut it down, and we want to make it run better, we put ethanol in there. So we would think ethanol, good, right, if there's a, a water issue. But because it attracts water, if we put it into a container that's not impermeable, 100% impermeable to moisture, it will have a tendency to pull moisture from the air into the fuel. If that's done for long enough, we can get more water in the fuel than the, than the ethanol can compensate for. All right, so that's the fear. What Steve says is airtight container, metal cans, sealed. The water's not going to go in there because it can't get through the seal and the metal. So shut up and store your fuel, whether it's ethanol or not. What Tim's saying is because the risk is there, if you have a choice between ethanol or no ethanol, go with no ethanol. I don't think it's that big a deal if you have an airtight container either direction, but I understand both of their viewpoints. Steve Harris's point is if I had a bottle of 198-proof freaking ethyl alcohol in a glass bottle, and I put it in a cellar for 250 years, you could take it out and dump it into a vehicle, and it'll burn. So shut up already. Tim's thought is, why do you want it in your gas if you don't have to have it in your gas if it's long-term storage fuel? Again, I think we're splitting hairs, but I understand both sides of the debate. Now, when we look at small engine motors, things get interesting. Here's why. Um, if we take ethanol-based fuel and we put it in our lawnmower or our chainsaw or something, we have a little bitty fuel tank. It's not very big. And it's probably not airtight, quote-unquote. It's probably got a lot more potential for moisture to be taken into the fuel. If we have something that's hydroscopic like ethanol in there, it has a greater potential to realize Tim's concerns with storing ethanol-based fuel, and that is taking in too much moisture and causing issues with the motor. So what's the solution to that? You shouldn't have fuel in a small motor's tank for more than about 30 days anyway. If that 
pieces of equipment can go more than 30 days without running, drain it. Drain it. And then it doesn't matter. And there you go. I also think anybody running small motors, especially things like outboards and stuff like that, that are, you know, uh, I had a Briggs and Stratton 5 horsepower. The thing would run for days on a three-gallon tank of fuel. Uh, I always put stable in the fuel. Because it used so little fuel, it ended up in the tank for a long time. Uh, and that would be another time when you're using marine applications, you might want to stay away from ethanol. It, it will do just fine. It will perform just fine. But it does have that ability to take in water. And at first, it's a good thing, but it can long-term, improperly stored, lead to excess moisture. So that's that's the debate. So it's 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 not... Uh, on or off thing. It's not an A or B question. It's not a dichotomy like we try to break everything down to. It's that both things have advantages and we have to determine in our situation and with our availability which one we're going to use and how we're going to mitigate against the risks. Again, with our small motors, the way we mitigate risk, if it's going to run less than once every 30 days, drain the dadgone fuel. And if you don't know what else to do with it, dump it in your car or truck And use fresh fuel in your small motors. Very, very simple, very, very easy to do. And your long-term storage fuel, make sure it's freaking sealed. In Harris's words, what part of airtight container do people not understand? So for me, especially in the small volumes, I'm looking at NATO or U.S. mil-spec jerry cans. Okay, I have another tip for you. If you're going to use those little red cans they sell at Walmart and Lowe's and Home Depot and True Value and all those other stores like that, and you go out and you buy some and you stick it in your set and you go, I got some fuel now, nothing wrong with that. Those cans are not really that bad for that, especially if we had like, uh, we want to store 60 gallons. We had 12 five-gallon cans and one says J-A-N on it, a marker, a Sharpie so it won't go away, and then it says F-E-B. And then MAR, you get it. So you got one for each month. And each month we go down there, we get that can, we dump it into our vehicle, we take it with us, we refill it, and we put it back in the rotation. That'll be fine. That'll be fine. That'll never have a problem for you. I promise you, you can store fuel for a year in a can like that, ethanol or not. In, in those kind of cans, you would be better off with non-ethanol fuel if you can get it. Okay, But it will be okay, especially if it's stabilized. All right, But... Due to our government helping us because we can't have gas fumes leaking out, they have these little little uh, little uh, container tops now that don't screw on uh, the way that old style ones do. They sit there with the little uh, nozzle sticking up. Most of those little nozzles are too short to effectively get into the fuel tank, so it's hard for you to dump your can of fuel into your vehicle. Get yourself a longer nozzle if you're going to use things like that. And see if you can find somewhere the old school caps that just screw on there and hold it on. It used to be you take this cap off and flip it around and it turned into this long nozzle. They don't make them that way anymore. Now they have this thing that you have to pull back this safety like it's a freaking gun and hold it down. And if you let it go, the fuel stops going and that's supposed to protect things. But trust me, those things leak like a sieve. The old school ones worked better. The, the concern the government had was people would store them without closing them. They'd leave that long nozzle and just put that little cap on the end of it. But if you take one of those things and you set it up the way they tell you to and you stick it in a shed and you go back in there on a warm day, you'll smell gas fumes everywhere and we know what that means. So let's go ahead and take another call now. Hey, Jack. This is Travis from Wisconsin again. Um, I'm, I have a question about treated lumber. I got some free 
leftover treated lumber from a deck project that my neighbor's doing. And there's enough to build like three raised beds with it. I'm wondering if I can build the raised beds with the treated lumber and if there's something certain I could plant in there that won't be affected as much. Also, I'm also wondering about leftover pickled items in the compost pile. I'm wondering if the vinegar in the pickled pickles and peppers and stuff will hurt the compost pile. Thanks for everything you do. Oh, the great and powerful and almighty treated lumber debate for gardeners. Will treated lumber kill you? The answer is no. Is it a good thing and should it be your first choice for a raised bed garden? The answer is no. What is the real concern? Well, treated lumber is treated with something called CCA. CCA stands for chromium, copper, and arsenic. Chromium and copper are actually beneficial to the body in small amounts. Uh, large amounts, they can be harmful, but you're not going to get enough to be harmful of either one from treated lumber. Much of it is bound into the wood and will never come out. Some of it will leach out over time. Uh, the other one is arsenic. Arsenic comes in two forms, organic and inorganic arsenic. The one that is a bigger concern for us is inorganic ar 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 arsenic. Organic arsenic is not good for you, as some people would tell you. It's actually bad for you, but it's a toxin, and like most toxins, the body is easily able to eliminate it, and you'd have to have it in very, very, very large amounts, uh, certainly more than whatever leach out of your boards, to cause any problems whatsoever for you, your vegetables, or your plants. It just isn't going to happen. Um, now, inorganic arsenic, on the other hand, can bioaccumulate. And if you were to receive a dose of around 0.13 micrograms every day for your entire life, it could theoretically accumulate to levels that would cause you problems. Understand that we would have to have far more than 0.13 micrograms in the soil to get that much of it into the plants that we're going to consume, specifically the parts of the plants that we're going to consume, Uh, to uh, to have that happen. And we'd have to be eating every single day of our lives to do that. So the reality is, if you built a raised bed with CCA lumber and did nothing, um, in order to get enough leaching to really matter, you would have to have a soil pH of 4 or lower and probably 3 or lower. And if you had soil that acidic, nothing would freaking grow anyway. Okay. So what that tells us is that we would call we would put it in the relatively safe but not optimum category, kind of like distilled water. If you had a, a choice of untreated lumber or treated lumber, which one would you use? You'd use the untreated lumber; wouldn't last as long. It would rot and go away. But it's cheap, and when it did, when it got to the end of its about five to six year life cycle, you would just replace it. Treated lumber will last longer for you. Would I throw it away or do something else with it? No. If I wanted to build a raised bed with it, I would probably build a raised bed. Then we have to ask ourselves, though, if we're actually concerned about this, what could we do to mitigate this? Surely there's some high-tech, very expensive way to reduce the amount of leaching from the wood into the bed. How would we do that? Hmm, maybe some of that like plastic that's like four or five bucks a roll. Maybe if we built our raised bed and took a fancy tool like a staple gun and stapled two layers of plastic on the inside of the bed, let it overhang so it would be easy, filled the bed up, and then went along with a razor knife and cut that off, we would drastically reduce the amount of leaching from the bed inward. And in fact, we would reduce the moist soil uh, contact 
with the uh, with the wood, and we'd actually extend the life of the wood at the same time, and we'd get more leaching out into the surrounding area than into the area where we're growing our food. So that would be one thing. We would also take note of the fact that arsenic, once in the soil, doesn't migrate very much, kind of stays where it is. And if we didn't plant things right up against the edge, that would mitigate things as well. Then we would take into account the fact that arsenic accumulates mostly in the parts of the plants that we don't consume, And with our root vegetables, especially things like carrots and potatoes like that, mostly in the peel. So if any of those types of vegetables were grown in a bed that we were really concerned about, and I probably wouldn't be, but if we were really concerned about that, then we could peel those and eliminate that as well. We need to really focus on this, though. It's not the arsenic. It's how much the arsenic ends up in the food. And the levels that are capable of leaching from CCA lumber into a garden bed uh, it, it will, under the most extreme circumstances where the damn stuff will still grow, again, soil pH of three, we're in a different world, but what are you going to grow there anyway? You're certainly not going to grow tomatoes and potatoes and carrots and onions and celery with a soil with a pH of three. Okay. Uh, we'd have to have a, 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 just an extensive amount of leaching to get even a, a perceptible amount of arsenic, inorganic arsenic, into our food. It's really not worth concerning yourself with, even though it's not optimum. I built my beds with untreated lumber. When it rots, I'll spend another 50 bucks and put new lumber in. I mean, uh, so it's not like I'm saying it's my first choice, but if I have scrap wood that's treated lumber and I can build a bed with it, it's not going to stop me. Again, putting some type of a barrier uh, along the inside would be, you know, a reasonable precaution to take. Heavy drop plastic would be a good way to go. Staple your first layer on. Put your second layer on and choose a different path. Yes, there'll be some moisture seepage through the stable holes. But again, we'd probably be okay without doing it anyway. But what that will do is extend the life of the bed anyway. Let's take another call. Jack, Brent and Prince Edward Island. Question, are vitamin supplements worth it? Uh, the long answer, or the long question is, I had a discussion with one of my colleagues who... Uh, was looking at some research about uh, vitamins being uh, not worth it, waste of money, flush down the toilet. Uh, if you eat properly, you'll get everything you need. I would like to get your personal opinion on it. I personally believe they are worth it, particularly us in uh, the northern climates. I take extra vitamin D. Wanted to get your thoughts on it. Thanks. Bye. My belief is in general, yes. Uh, are they necessary? No. There's plenty of people that have never taken a vitamin supplement in their life and are relatively healthy. It's, it's funny how these questions get to We got distilled water, we got CCA lumber. There's all health questions this week. It's crazy because, trust me, I didn't select them this way. It's just kind of the order they came in that made it through the screening process. Um, here's my view. Number one, I'm going to point you to a pretty good article. Um, I don't agree with everything that the person says, but it's called the ABCs of vitamins. Are they worth taking on Fox News? And, you know, for instance, uh, the expert says A and E don't even bother, but yes, B12, uh, yes, C, but only 500 milligrams, yes, D, uh, yes, K, and yes, calcium. So a lot of them, they say yes. Now, 
There's a couple things I'd like to talk to you guys about with vitamins uh, that are not generally talked about by so-called experts in, in the medical field. Uh, one is B12. The primary problem with B12 in America and low instances of B12 in the body can be put into two categories. One, not enough meat, and two, the body changing over time and not being able to absorb B12. There are plenty of older people that are deficient in B12 or are just barely where they're supposed to be by science, which I think the numbers science says are, are too low, that they should be higher, because their body has lost the ability to absorb B12. And it's why we have a lot of depression in seniors. And many times, seniors that are just lethargic and depressed, if we get them tests for B12, and if they're borderline or under, and we give them B12 injections, all of a sudden, man, they just they turn back on. You know, they're like a new person. They feel like they're 10 years younger. So B12 is something that we can take, but if we have a problem with absorption uh, in our digestive tract, and I believe a lot of this is, is not due to, it's just because you're getting older and that's the way that it is. It's a lifetime of eating a high-sugar, high-carbohydrate, agitating environment that disrupts the digestive process, a lack of, of, of proteins and fats and fermented foods. And if we ate a traditional diet, which includes all of those things, we'd have less people, not all people not, but less people not getting to that problem of absorbing the B12. So that's one side of B12. Another side of B12 is when it goes into deficiency in the body, which many Americans probably have, or they're borderline, quote-unquote, okay, based on modern scientific uh, idiocy, is the only way I can describe it, it leads to elevated levels of something called homocysteine in the bloodstream. Uh, homocysteine uh, is, is a problem because it's actually the biggest cause of buildup of cholesterol in your arteries that exist. It's not meat and pork and, 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 you know, eating butter that causes this. It's homocysteine. And it is a amino acid, a non-protein toxic amino acid that's, let's just call it jagged, and it flows through your blood and it creates little scratches and scars in your artery walls and, Cholesterol is the body's means of fixing things. So instead of that nice smooth arterial wall that the cholesterol just slides off of, there's this little this little scratch, right? And then the cholesterol begins to build up on that scratch. And that's one of the leading causes of hardening the arteries, arterial sclerosis, buildup of cholesterol, whatever we're calling it these days. Uh, this is all scientific fact. If you'll actually read the literature, you'll find out that it's fact and that The chief cause of it is, of course, a, a, a low volume of B12 absorbed into the body, which even if we're getting lots of B12 in our diet, if we're eating the wrong type of diet, we're damaging our digestive system with inflammation to do large amounts of things like sugar and wheat, we don't get enough of it absorbed, and we have lower levels, and this homocysteine can run rampant. In extreme cases, it's caused things like heart attacks in people in their 20s. That's extreme cases. It's not something you need to start freaking out about, but it has happened. That's kind of maybe an important thing for us to understand. Um, that's your B12 lesson for the day. Now, on the, the vitamins, there's this huge debate. Do we get enough from our, our diet? Let's see. If we live out on a farm, we raise our own meat, we eat lots of meat, we eat lots of homegrown vegetables, we do organic gardening, yeah, we're going to get everything we need. Um, if we're living on a modern American diet, we're probably deficient. The, the bigger problem, they come about, well, how absorbable is it? 
Well, to me, it's more about the digestive tract. If we're eating things that damage our digestive tract, we're going to have problems absorbing what's available in our foods, and we're going to have problems absorbing even if we take a supplement. So it's a healthy, rounded diet, and it's a definition of what that is. It is not based on seven freaking servings of freaking whole wheat and, and, and flour and crap like that a day. If you're doing that to yourself, you're creating inflammation in the gut, and you're not going to get full absorption. So... What are what are vitamins best for? Uh, I think that if you read this article, overall I'm okay with the recommendations. I think higher doses of vitamin C are absolutely beneficial in a variety of ways. Uh, if you look up a guy named Linus Paul, who was a Nobel laureate, who did huge research into vitamin C, you'll see that he actually got people through heroin addiction with vitamin C. It is so underutilized by modern medicine. So I think that they're worth it, but they have limitations. And they're not just going to make you better. And make you not get cancer and all these other promises that vitamin makers promise you. You do want to look for something that will dissolve and be absorbed. And I think that there's also a, a, a place for them in our preps because if we go into a nutrient deficient diet for a time, they can help us bridge that period of time. But some of the things that I think have the highest potential to help us. Uh, would would be things like, again, B12, as long as we're not having absorption problems. There are sublingual products out there. They do work rather well. They do get more into the body. They are not a substitute for a B12 injection for those with pernicious anemia, which is when you're severely deficient in B12. Any of you that think I'm pulling that, this out of my ass, Google pernicious anemia. Right. I mean, I know this subject. I've researched it because of uh, other people in my life that have had problems with it. Uh, vitamin C, I would tell you that I believe a thousand milligrams is 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 better. Is a baseline five hundred. Kiss my ass. It's it's water soluble. If you take too much, you'll pee it out, and it's cheap. Uh, vitamin D is a, a great supplement. I agree with the author on that. Uh, vitamin K is in leafy green vegetables. He says if you're eating enough salad, you should be all set. Yeah, it all depends, though. Um, this is something we have to realize, that a lot of our soils have been demineralized, uh, and they have been saturated with chemical fertilizers for so long that even if the minerals are there, they've been bound up to where the plants can't absorb them anymore. So, uh, you know, if you, I'll put it to you this way. I take a basic, off-the-shelf, multivitamin once a day, it certainly doesn't hurt anything. Uh, I also think that some of the things that are out there now that are kind of new in the antioxidant world, uh, not new really anymore, but like pycnogenol, COQ10, things like that may be very beneficial. Again, they're certainly not harmful. I think that the cost of vitamin supplementation As long as you don't go do something stupid and pay $150 a month for some crap, your buddy that signed up for some Amway spinoff or some MLM in his backyard or has you know, got his garage stocked with a shit or, I don't do that because they drop ship your overpriced vitamins. As long as it's not that, right? And as long as it's not something that doesn't dissolve well and you can you know look up the specs on just about any product you buy, uh, you know they're so cheap that why not add it in? That's my viewpoint Let's take another call. Oh, also, I would tell you that um, during uh, like flu season and stuff like that, uh, vitamin D is primarily created by solar exposure to your skin to the sun. Uh, it's 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 a great uh, thing to help prevent diseases and illnesses. And I definitely ramp up my D intake when the days are shorter. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Keith from Denver again. Hey, uh. 
so my parents were looking at uh, buying a house in a place just south of Denver that's infested with rattlesnakes. Um, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on natural rattlesnake control. I know that should be messing with them, but uh, they're really looking at it. And one thing that these guys have found was the current owners use potbelly pigs as snake control. Now, there's a couple other varieties of pig, I think, that they use. Anyways, just uh, looking for some thoughts. Back soon. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Um, your, your initial thing about the pigs, if they're open to having a few potbelly pigs running around, especially like in the immediate area around the house, man, they will tear up a snake. Uh, and, and they'll do it fast, and you won't have much problem with them. So if they're open to that, you're good to go. The other animal that I know that's well-known for stomping the shit out of snakes is uh, horses and mules, and mules more than horses. If they see one, they just stomp the hell out of it. So if you had a couple of uh, mules running around in the immediate area, you probably wouldn't have much problem with your snakes. I would tell you with your if they have dogs, take them to the vet and get them vaccinated. There's a rattlesnake vaccine for dogs that's highly effective. Uh, so that would be one way to protect your animals. Uh, the other thing I would say is uh, no matter what you do for control, be highly vigilant in walking around where you put things, where you reach for things and look for stuff. And that's good for anybody that lives anywhere in snake country. Uh, that's, that's another. The next thing I would tell you is the amount of rattlesnakes in the area is probably a little bit overblown. Um, now, if there's like a den site nearby where they'll all den up at certain times of the year, there's high concentrations of them there. But there's probably not as many as the myth in the local community, so don't be totally terrified. Keep in mind that the majority of snake bites in America every year are, one, non-lethal. Number two, obtained by individuals who are males between the ages of 18 and 30, which is when we're still really stupid, Uh, and three, uh, either on the hands or the wrist or the forearm, which means that most of these fools screwed with the snake. And if we don't screw with the snake, we're not likely to get bit. I would also tell you that if I had a choice between being in an area inhabited with, with uh, cottonmouths, water moccasins, however way you want to call them by their common name, or rattlesnakes, I would prefer the rattlesnakes because rattlesnakes are more likely to give you a warning and them dadgone cottonmouths don't back off. They just sit there with their mouth open and hope to God you see it before you step on one. And when the damn things come out of their mud burrows in the spring when they're still moving slow and they're coated with mud uh, and they're laying on a mud bank, you almost walk on them without seeing them. So I actually would prefer to deal with rattlers uh, than cottonmouths. And, and you know, cottonmouth moccasins are the same snake for those who don't know. Um, so that's my initial thoughts. Now, if you want natural rattlesnake control, 100% natural, I only know of one way to do that. They're called king snakes and milk snakes. And if they're in your area, I would go out and find as many of them as I can and release them on your property. If you have king snakes and milk snakes, you're going to have a lot less rattlesnakes. Milk snakes don't get very large, uh, but they will predate heavily on young rattlers, and your king snakes will predate on very large rattlesnakes. And they are immune to the, ve the venomous effects uh, of rattlesnakes. Uh, that doesn't mean they can't be harmed. Uh, I want you to think about if somebody shoved uh, something the size of a rattlesnake fang through you and you were only as big around as a king snake, it can do you harm. But generally, they do quite well as predators. They're called king snakes because, well, they prey on other snakes. Same reason we call a king cobra a king cobra. It ain't just because it's big. 
It's because the primary diet of the king cobra there over in uh, you know Asia, India, that area is other snakes. Uh, unfortunately for the people there, their snake predator is venomous. Our snake predator here, kings and milks, are completely harmless. So assuming that they're worried about the venomous nature of the rattlesnake. By the way, folks, there's no such thing as a poisonous snake. I know this is kind of a clip magazine thing, but as a herpetologist, I, I just, it's poisonous. No, no, it's venomous. Poison is ingested or touched. Uh, venom is, it has to be injected into the bloodstream or enter the body through some other means, like through the eyes or the nose. And it only still has to get into the bloodstream for it to actually have any real effects. Uh, people can and have drank snake venom with no ill effects. Don't advise it because you never know if there's some cut or damage in your, your, your you know, digestive tract that it could get in through, but uh, it really is not poisonous. It's venom. It has to get into the bloodstream directly uh, to do harm. So assuming they were not afraid of the venom or the snakes themselves, but their venomous nature, populating the place with as many kings and milks as you can get your hands on, and you have to obey state, obey state laws as well. Like you can't go like order a bunch of them online and let them go. Please don't do that. And if you do, don't tell anybody you did it. But please don't do that. But if they are in your area, and I don't really know the you know the herpetology south of Denver very well, um, but I would just have to imagine you have things like prairie kings and stuff like that up there. Uh, is you know those will predate heavily. There are some other wild animals that will predate on rattlesnakes. Bobcats will do it. Uh, but if you're homesteading at all, they're not necessarily the greatest thing to have around. Uh, birds of prey will do it. I've seen birds of prey pick rattlers and other snakes up and carry them away and eat them. Uh, but the big natural predator, uh, honey badger, right? <laughs> honey badger don't give a shit, right? Uh, but yeah, wolverines will, will prey on them. Uh, weasels and ermines will prey on snakes as well, but they'll prey on all snakes. But your, the pigs are your best bet, honest to God. And little pot-bellied pigs will just destroy uh, just about any snake that they find, and they seem to do so without uh, uh, having any ill effects, whether that's due to venom immunity or just the way that they do it. I don't really know, but I've checked into it since you mentioned it, and uh, the general consensus of anybody that's used them for that purpose is we don't see any snakes unless they're being destroyed by the pigs and we happen to catch them in the act. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Greg from Wilmington, Delaware, and I've got a comment for gun owners. Join a gun club. For the longest time, I would take my gun to the range a couple times a year, and that was about it. I live in one of the most densely populated counties in one of the most densely populated states. So my choices of ranges is pretty limited. I would shoot in an indoor range with high hourly rates required that I buy their ammo at a premium or else an outdoor range that had limited hours and was always crowded. Safety was becoming a concern as more and more first-time shooters were coming out to the ranges who didn't know the basics of safe gun handling. So I decided to look into joining a club. And to my surprise, there was a small indoor club within 10 minutes of my house that I never knew existed. Annual dues are about the same as just a few trips to the indoor range. I can bring my own ammo and have a key, which gives me 24-7 access. New members are required to go through safety classes and qualify before being allowed to join. The club is also a great place to go and talk about guns, shoot the breeze in the club room when not on the range, use firearms, or, or, and shooting equipment is always posted on classified boards uh, in the club room. And we even have a, a gunsmith and FFL as members. Uh, and they offer their services at a competitive price. Although advanced training isn't offered at the club, some members have taken courses and can direct you to a good local instructor. 
while more and more people are getting into shooting, clubs are quickly reaching their membership capacity, and I don't see new gun clubs opening in my area. Thanks for the show. I've been listening since the beginning. You make my hour-and-a-half morning commute bearable. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, the end is the important part. Most clubs, uh, you're, it's almost not really membership. They're actually set up with kind of like a fractional ownership. So you actually own a share in the club. Some are more of a conventional members club, but a lot of them are a share ownership. Um, you can't find them anywhere, but they seem more prevalent up in the Northeast than in many other parts of the country. Somebody will email me today and tell there's 20 of them in some little town in uh, Colorado or something like that. And I, they may be, but I think one of the reasons they're heavily in the Northeast is because of the high populated areas and people need a place to shoot. So if you live out in Phoenix and you can drive you know, 20 minutes out into the desert and set targets up and shoot to your heart's content with none of the restrictions, which can be both good and bad depending on your brain cell count... Um, then the, the attraction to joining a club, paying a membership fee, you know, is a lot less than if you live somewhere like Baltimore, Maryland, where it's very difficult to find a place to discharge a firearm. When I was in Arlington, I was looking for a gun club, and I found one, and it was at capacity. And it was basically, if you wanted to share, you had to find a member that was willing to share their share, and they were selling it for far more than they did when they joined. So the caller's right about that. The beauty of a gun club is the community. And the, the caller alluded to that a lot. If you go to a gun club, you're going to go talk to like-minded people, right? You're not going to go down to a gun club and hear somebody go, well, the government's going to solve all their problems. <laughs> you're just not going to find that there. Uh, you're going to find people that believe in self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and independence. It's part of their bent. Uh, gun owners in general uh, think that way. So it's a great way to find like-minded people and start building community. And in that community today, you're going to find a lot of people that are of the prepper mindset. So I think there's a tremendous advantage there. The big thing is finding one. So if you're interested in this, uh, start doing your research now. See if you can find any options now. And get in now, because he's right. They are uh, kind of filling up in many places. Like I said, I could find one in the Arlington, Texas area, and it was full to capacity, and that was years ago, years and years ago. Where I lived in Pennsylvania, it was kind of weird. Like, you could shoot anywhere you wanted, but yet the gun clubs were still really popular, uh, and, and they had some really cool things going on. Like, there was this huge piece of property that was owned up by a, uh, this, this little airport called Zerby's Airport, which is probably, I would imagine, still there. But it's like, you know, little one-seater planes flying in and out. This is not like a commercial air, you know. I guess it's commercial, but it's not like where you would go to get a flight somewhere other than hiring a private pilot. And uh, there was all this, this property adjacent to that airport, and it was acres and acres, and they had a rifle range, and there were rock quarries that were filled in. You could swim in and all. And just about anybody, there was like no limit. Anybody could be a member, and you paid your annual fee, and you got a key to a gate. And you could go and you had access not just to the rifle range, but to all this land. And people hunted up there as well. And uh, it was really kind of cool. And then there were little rotting gun clubs, they called them, that were basically a way to get a low-cost liquor license. But, you know, they'd buy a piece of land and put a little bar and grill, and then maybe they would, uh, you know, put in a, a stock pond for kids to fish, and they were children of the people that were members of the club. And they were all over the place. And uh, uh, those were really cool places to meet people as well. So whether you have kind of a more formalized indoor range type of thing or you have something like I'm talking about from 
Rural PA. If it's if it's in your area and you're interested, uh, in many instances, yes, that's kind of a share count or total member count limitation. And if something's available and you ever want to do it, I think now would be the time. Because, no, I haven't seen a new gun club established, I would have to say, ever. I, I, I'm sure it's happened, uh, but I've never heard somebody say, hey, Jack, guess what? We're finding a gun club over here. Uh, if, if you do know of any new openings, maybe we start a forum thread, or not just on openings, but gun clubs that are out there that have memberships available in the firearms board of our forum. That might be a good project for one of you guys to do. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Bill coming to you from Greenville, North Carolina. I'm wanting to build a uh, four-foot by four-foot square foot yard in a uh, raised bed garden. And the question I have is, this is going to go on a patio of my apartment. So can I put the soil, can I put the soil directly onto the patio, of course, with a, a tarp to line uh, the box? Or should I uh, put the soil onto a... Uh, plywood board so I can uh, put some drain holes in it for the water to drain. I'm not sure if that's going to be able to handle the weight of all this, but thanks for listening and hope to hear from you. Uh, thanks. Depends on what your patio is made out of. If your patio is uh, made out of concrete, it isn't that big a deal, and a tarp would probably be sufficient, and it's probably what I would do. You're not going to get a lot of great drainage that way, but you're you're not going to have too much problem with overwatering anyway. Eventually, the water would just kind of come out the top, so to speak, and you will get weepage in between, and it'll probably take care of your draining, and it would be okay, but it wouldn't be optimum. Um, this is what I would do. I would use uh, half-inch ply, which is pretty damn sturdy to begin with, and I would build a frame uh, to sit it on that would bring it up off the ground. And you could just build this off a cheap stud wood uh, 2x4s, which are about 2 bucks a piece. I'm talking about white wood stud board. So you would need two of them to make a square, a 4x4 four four square, uh, to put your plywood on top of. And then you would need one more. And I would run it so you basically created a grid that was two by two foot square, two foot square grid. So think of a square and draw a line right through the center, up and down, and right through the center. So that makes a reinforced floor frame. I'd put my plywood on there, and then I would use something like two by six lumber, uh, two eight feet, eight foot pieces of two by eight or two by six lumber to create enough depth for your garden. If you want to go to two by eights, they're not that much more expensive. I would use untreated wood. Build your box on top of that. Put your grid on it. Plant into that. Drill holes in the plywood to allow for drainage. The reason I would do this, you're going to get less discoloring of your patio. And this is the reality about apartment management companies. They see your deposit as their money, and they look for any way to keep it when you leave. Any way at all possible that they can keep it, they will keep your deposit. They already, let me say it again, they already see it as their money. They just have to justify keeping it. And I know somebody that does property management is going to email me and go, Jack, I don't do that, and you're one out of a hundred. I've talked to enough people and dealt with enough of this crap that I know the mentality. How do we keep the deposit is, and I know of, I know of one major apartment management company that I know manages apartments in at least 10 states, I think more, that they actually pay their managers an incentive to retain a certain portion of the deposits. Okay? I'm not going to say who it is. I'm sure they're not the only one, but just, Understand that. So a nice discolored square on the patio that they're probably not going to do anything to fix, 
might be that reason. So lifting it up will help with that. Now here's a little modification you can make on your patio garden that would just be simple and awesome. Uh, you're not going to have, it's not that much weight. Especially if you do the frame, like I said, uh, you're not going to have uh, a problem with that at all uh, as far as supporting it, especially with half-inch ply. But if we take our frame, and before we build the, the thing on top of it, we flip it you know, upside down so the bottom is facing up, and we drill four holes, maybe six holes, into the wood, and we get these nice little caster wheels that are designed. You drill a hole in a piece of wood, and they just plug in there, and they roll around. You can get those things for like three bucks a piece at the hardware store. So you had like 12, 15, 16 bucks to the cost. You'll be able to move it around. So when it's really, really hot, maybe you push it to part of your patio that gets a little more shade. When it's really, really cool, you push it over there. Since you're moving it, if you have a wooden patio, you're going to get less of that, you know, sun-bleached discoloration. And moving it around is cool. It's, e it's nice to be able to, like, just move it to the side and sweep off your patio and put it back. So I would look at on putting on a good set of wheels. And it won't cost much money. And all you'll have to do is they'll, you know, if you find these things and go ask the hardware guy who knows what he's doing. You might have to talk to two or three people at one of those box stores. But you find the guy that has two brain cells firing towards each other. But when you find him, he'll know what you mean. And that you know, you, they, they just have a little. It almost looks like a metal dowel that goes up into the uh, into whatever you're sticking it onto. And you need to know the diameter of that. And you get a drill bit, a little bit bigger than that diameter, and you drill a hole and you just stick it in that hole. You flip it over, build your square foot garden on that, and you can move it around. How cool is that? And for a lot of people, even in suburban environments that have a little house and a patio garden, things like that, that's another, that's another great thing that you can do because you can easily move. You could have you know, 10 of those things and move them around. If you really wanted to get fancy, I mean, you could mount like little tires that are designed for like wagons or wheelbarrows and even move them through lawns and things like that. I'm just saying. But for the patio garden, simple caster wheels are probably a great addition. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Brian from New Jersey. I've been listening to a lot of the podcasts about alternative currencies. Um, Taking into account that silver, copper, gold are uh, going, could be uh, the next currency options. What are some unforeseen currency options that um, might be good to stock up on um, that, that could be uh, valuable in a pinch? Um, just like your thoughts on that. Thank you, Jack. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever sat and thought to yourself when thinking about the world of government uh, and the world of government regulation and said to yourself, Self, I understand why there might be a Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco as one department of government, but Self, I do not understand how firearms get linked to alcohol and tobacco. I used to have that conversation with myself, and eventually I figured out the answer. There's your three forms of currency, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, and specifically ammunition. They're in a single government body because they are the most primary things that people would use for barter and trade or trade for money in a normal economy that exists in the world. They're heavily regulated and heavily taxed, and there's a big underground market for them, which tells us what? That in a breakdown, all three of them would probably be great currency items. 
Uh, there's not a lot of alcohol and firearms in prisons, at least in the hands of prisoners, at least not openly as far as the alcohol goes. There's probably more alcohol and drugs in prisons than there are in our school systems, and we say we need law enforcement to keep drugs out of our schools, and we lie to our people about that. But letting that go, what is the primary currency in our prison system? Cigarettes. Why? It's tobacco. And even if you don't smoke tobacco, it stores relatively well, and it's easily converted. So those would be your three big ones, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. I remember... Uh, back in the 80s, watching, I don't remember what the story was about, but it was a story being done on 2020 with one of my favorite people, John Stossel. And he was over in the Soviet Union, which was still you know, under the Iron Curtain at the time, and he was demonstrating how certain things could get things done for you, and he was waving for taxis. And they just drove past him laughing, oh, look at the stupid American with a mustache, he wants us to stop. He held up rubles, right? And he said, here's Russian money. And they held it up and waved at the cab driver, and the cab driver drove past him. This really happened, man. I don't, I don't remember exactly what the story, I think it was about the black market, actually, and Levi's jeans and marble cigarettes, right? Uh, yeah, now it's coming back to me. Again, it's 1985, and this is going to tie into the final question of the day with why I think the way that I do. So he holds up a pack of Marlboros, and the first cab pulls over like that fast. And that was a demonstration to me even way back then, and I was in freaking like junior high, maybe my first year of high school, I don't remember which, and I remember that. I remember that. And so those would be some primary forms of currency. If things got really bad, rice and beans uh, and wheat store almost indefinitely in their food. Uh, those would be forms of currency. But here's the reality. We're not going back to Little House on the Prairie, folks. We're not going back to the Stone Age. It's not going to happen. There will be a currency of some sort in the world, and having these commodities will probably create the greatest amount of opportunity for us to mitigate that currency conversion. Because I'm going to tell you right now what I think is going to happen. Uh, I'm going to tell you, and you're not going to like it, and some of you will disagree, but I'm going to tell you this is what I think is going to happen. Over the next five years... Uh, maybe 10, it might take for this to fully work itself out, but I think 5 is, is closer. There's going to be a huge push to change the money in two ways. One, in supposed to fix the broken system that has no mathematical uh, out other than to fail. Our current system will fail. It has to fail mathematically. It cannot continue forever. It's based on debt. The debt continues to grow. There's a breaking point. We're seeing it happen in parts of Europe right now. We've seen it happen in other countries. Ours will be no different. So one will be we have to fix this. There'll be this amazing economic recession, something that will make what we went through from 2008 through 2011 look like a joke. And what's going on right now look like a joke. That's what's going to happen. And when that happens, they'll step in with this new currency. The other push, and it may come during, before, or after. But I think you might see this one even before, because it will make the second one even easier to do, is a move to an electronic currency. They want to get rid of all cash. They want no cash. They want no barter. They want every single transaction traced. This is what they will tell you. If we do that, we'll end the drug trade and the prostitution trade and the illegal smuggling and the weapons caches and the cartels and blah, 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 blah. And it won't do one damn thing to end any of it. The only people it might affect are the dealers on the street, and they'll quickly come up with a way around it. 
The government's making more money on the war on drugs than the dealers. I don't want the war on drugs to go away. If they did, they just legalize drugs. They put it into a regulated system and they tax it. And they would end the cartels tomorrow morning because you can't sell something for a profit when you can buy it cheap on the main market. That's why there was a black market in the Soviet Union in the first place and John Stossel could wave a cab down with a pack of Marlboros. All right, Because they weren't there. If there had been Marlboros on every street corner, the cab driver would have pulled over for the money instead of pulling over for the cigarettes or pulling over for a pair of Levi's jeans, which was another thing. Those were two big things over there at the time that you could get things done with. So, back to the original question. What do I think the commodities you should be investing in now to deal with a barter economy or a currency exchange should be? Uh, and that will be gold and silver are your primaries. And your secondaries, I would say, if you're worried about that transitional period, food, alcohol, tobacco, and ammunition. And we may never need those other ones. And the first ones that you'll be able to trade for things will probably be alcohol and tobacco. Long before the ammunition. And if you trade somebody alcohol and tobacco, they can't turn around and shoot you with it. So that's another consideration. But this, this new electronic and new revalued currency situation, all the guys out there, if we just had a gold standard, or if we just had a gold and silver standard, we'll probably go to a gold standard. We'll probably go to a gold standard, and it'll probably screw everybody. It'll be a reset back to the beginning, and then we'll start heading toward another fiat system. Remember, why do we study history class? Is it because they told you in school, Tommy, we study history because we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. That's what your school teacher told you. And Jack Spirico has taught you what? That that is bullshit. We don't study history so we won't repeat the mistakes of the past. We constantly repeat the mistakes of the past. What does Jack teach, Jack teach you guys? We study history because sooner or later, if some dumbass did something stupid in the past, they're going to do it again, and we need to be prepared to deal with it. With that, let's take the final call of the day. Hi, Jack. This is Michael from Seattle. I was calling to ask you, I'm always curious when... I'm impressed with the way somebody thinks, how they came about to think the way that they think. Um, so was there typically books or events in your life that changed the way that you think that were memorous? Um, anyway, anyways, I'm, I'm interested in some landmark, either books or events in your life that have shaped the way that you now think. Thanks. I used to get that question. Well, first of all, let me say thank you for saying you're impressed by the way I think. I remember I had one guy on it. You guys might remember. He was a psychologist. He talked, came on and talked about fear and uncertainty he's seen his, his clients lately about the economy and the future and things like that. And we had a great discussion. But off the air, before we got on the air, I said, now, you're a mental health professional, right? And he goes, yeah. And I said, then would you go on record and say that Jack Spirico is not crazy? And his response was, well, um, yeah, uh, I think we're all a little crazy, which I, <laughs> I just laughed and let it go. But I was like, okay, so you won't go on record with the fact that I'm not insane. Because I think some people look at the way that I think and all this diversity and they go, this guy's nuts. In fact, my business partner, who I love like a brother, referred to me affectionately as Crazy Jack. Um, his daughter, uh, whenever I'm going to be around, he says, Crazy Jack's coming, and she starts bouncing off the wall. Crazy Jack's coming. Cra and she's cute, little blonde girl with a British accent. Just, I mean, 
God help Neil when she hits her teens and the boys start, or maybe I should say God help the boys when they start coming around uh, crazy Neil. But uh, So I've been called crazy, so thank you for saying you're impressed by the way I think instead of telling me that you think I'm freaking nuts. Um, now, on to the question. I used to get this question a lot more, and I don't get it much anymore, probably because I did an episode. Uh, I did an episode back... In September of 2010, which, you know, of course, it's highly likely that many people have never heard it, but it was episode 521 called Why I Think the Way That I Do. And uh, it was about a lot of things, like all of the stuff you're asking about, and, and things like, you know, the fact I'm a survivalist, but I don't believe that the world is just going to end, or we're going to have Armageddon, and I'm much more uh, uh, moderate than that. And I'm going to give you some of the bullet points in that event. This is going to kind of lead up to some things I want to say here at the end of the show as well about our future uh, as a community and what the hell we're going to do to take this country back. But uh, some of the things that I said were kind of a big deal for me were, one, my family was poor, but I never knew that was the case. Uh, two, I grew up in the woods holding a rifle. Uh, three, I've grown my own food my, almost my entire life, uh, especially as a young man uh, under the tutelage of my grandfather where we grew food to provide food for the house, not just because it was cool to do. I served in the military in the third world. That was probably one of the biggest influences on who I am today. I also came, became very successful in the mainstream world, and I saw all the good and bad that comes with that. In my heart, I'm a troubleshooter. And I've always been a troubleshooter. And what I mean by that is if you give me something, even if it seems to be working, I want to know, can I make it better? Can I make it uh, improve it? Can I make it more customized? And if there's a problem, I'm really on it. And I, I think that really got brought out of me as a mechanic in the Army. I'm not a great mechanic. I'm an okay mechanic. But the, the skill that I took away and improved upon was troubleshooting. And uh, I think that's a big part of why I, in my next thing on the list was I analyze everything I find interesting. If it's interesting, I analyze it. I might analyze it for a day and go, okay, I've got it. I'm done now. And I go on to something else. Or I might analyze it for months. But I'm going to analyze it. And I'm going to understand it. And I'm going to get an end-to-end -end process understanding of it. Uh, I remember details of things in a freaky sort of way. I just told you a story about 1985, John Stossel. And I bet that's the right year. I bet that's the right year. I was living in Florida. Jacksonville, Florida. I was in junior high school uh, when that occurred, now that I'm remembering that right. But I, I can remember that type of detail. I can tell you my, my locker combination from my senior year in high school. I can give you the phone number of a contact I had at Lockheed Martin when I was a contractor in 1996. All right, so I remember things that way. So when I see something... I always have all these different things that most people would never remember that might somehow relate to it. And as a troubleshooter, I put those two things together. So that's why I feel that way. I'm never satisfied that I've learned enough. I might have learned enough about a subject, but I always want to learn more. I read. If I go to the bathroom and I'm going to be more than a few moments to do number two, okay, and I forgot to take a magazine with me or something, I read shampoo bottles to see what's in them. I mean, I, I, if I have a moment of, of, if I'm not doing anything at all, I'm going to read, I'm going to learn. I, I cannot stop learning. Uh, that's, that's part of, I guess, who I am. Um, I know the reality of how fragile life and lifestyles are. Um, and to me, liberty is the most precious thing that a man can have. I'm working on a business book. And in the, my business book, I was writing a chapter talking about how I found my passion and how liberty related to it. And even in the book, I say that 
my my soul stirs as I type the word. I I, I can't if if you don't have the passion for liberty that I do, I I really cannot explain to you how important liberty is to me. And not my liberty, everybody's liberty. It is the driving force in my life, and that has a lot to do with it. I gave up on all political affiliations and became a political atheist a long time ago. I've given up as much personal prejudice as I'm humanly capable of. I can't say that I never, in my mind at least, if somebody you know cuts me off in traffic and they look a certain way, say something derogatory about them based on their appearance. But I try not to. I think the political atheism and the dropping of prejudice has opened me up to being willing to take all these other things in that I normally would have written off. And I think that's part of it. Um, I accept that at times I'm going to be completely wrong. Uh, I used to say it a lot on the show. I should probably say it more often. I reserve the right to be wrong on the show. I reserve the right to screw something up. And when I do, I try to come out and tell you, hey, I screwed that up. Um, I know I can't predict the future, but I can be prepared for it anyway. Uh, these are the things that make me think the way they do. I believe all above all else that I control my life, and I know I'm not a victim. I've recognized modern slavery in the debt system as being self-inflicted, that people do it to themselves. It's not the evil banker. The evil banker set the trap. We looked at it, went in anyway, and we can walk out anytime we want to. We stay in the trap by choice. I want to help others, but I understand in the end they have to choose for themselves. I don't try to, you know, when I first started doing this show and I would piss people off, they go, you need a broader tent like Ronald Reagan, a big tent theory, or stop saying things. I don't give a shit if you don't like my show. I really don't. I do it for the people that do. Right, and I so I know that I can only help the people that see it my way, or at least are open to my way. So if they can take my way and their way and put them together and come up with something better, and if you get pissed off and leave, well then go find something that does work for you, and and, and that lets me be free to be myself here and, and really try to help as many people as possible. And I, the biggest thing that I want for anybody in this audience is I want you to know why you believe what you believe. I don't care if we disagree, but damn it, know why. And don't believe something because somebody tells you. And that kind of leaves me to my clothes today. Um, as I watch these videos that people put together for my, if I wanted to save America speech, and I realize that we're coming to this kind of big head together with episode 1000. I kind of want to restate the mission of the show here at the end today, the, the restate the mission of the community, and not just my community, but the entire prepper, self-reliant, self-sufficient permaculture community, and 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 just tell you kind of as your you know your, your your general in this army, at least for this part of the army, what I what I see coming forward. Liberty is the most important thing in my life, and liberty of my fellow uh, citizens of the planet. And it's not in a globalistic way, but just in a, a humanistic way is the most important thing in the world for me. I want every single person that's under this, this sun and the, the stars of this planet to know liberty in their heart, even if they don't have it in their lives, so that they know what to strive for. And I am freaking sick and damn tired of everything that's being done to obstruct liberty. And I am going to fight for it for the rest of my life as long as the heart beats in my chest and as long as I breathe oxygen I will fight for liberty and I want to do it in a way that even when I'm gone that there's a spirit that lives on that continues to fight for that liberty even if it's not with somebody referencing my name that some peace has lived in the heart of some person that says hell no won't allow it 
And as we build up to this, I want you to realize what we're doing. I think that something very special happened that every single member of this audience that's communicated with me by even one email over three and a half, almost four years now, was part of with that speech, if I want to save America. I believe that that's going to reach people. I believe that's going to reach people. It will turn some people off, but it will reach people that weren't reachable by just about any other means, and they will come and become part of this community. And it will grow, and it will become more powerful. And the next time they step on somebody, and we decide as a community, okay, here's one we're not going to let happen. There'll be more of us, and we'll be more powerful. And we'll shove it up their ass even faster and even harder and make them wish to God they didn't attack a poor person that just did some simple thing that they shouldn't have been attacked for doing. I believe that. I believe that episode 1000 that's going to be you guys calling in is going to go three hours long or more. And that's going to be awesome. And I believe that that people are going to listen and be blown away by the stories of the transformations in people's lives. Because I see the emails all the time. I share them once in a while. But I see them all the time, and I know what's going on out there, and I know it's not about me. It's about you guys. I am just the communications medium. In many ways, it's not even me. I'm taking in everything you guys have, and I'm just putting it back so you can all share it. I am the, the, the loudspeaker that allows all of you to communicate with each other, almost like a radio network. You know, the, the fact that it's a lot like radio is kind of interesting when you think about it that way. But episode 1000 is going to blow people away. The Revolution 2.0, I want your pictures. I want your pictures of your gardens, teaching your kids to hunt and fish, camping, activities. I want anything that you're doing, solar panels on your roof, wind, wind generation in your backyard, whatever you're doing, chickens, your front yard garden with a sign that says, hey, come try to take this one, whatever it is, whatever you think fits, send me your pictures. Send them to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put revolution 2.0 in the subject line. I'll do a kick-ass job for you on that video. And I think when we look at over the next few months, we're going to be releasing the winner of the video contest with I want to say if I wanted to save America. We're going to be releasing episode 1000, and we're going to be releasing the new version of uh, the Revolution Is You Revolution 2.0 video. I think we're going to make a huge, huge impact in 2012. And I think we're going to reach a lot of people that are hearing all this hysteria crap, tuning into shows like Doomsday Bunkers and Doomsday Preppers that are thinking, I know there's something wrong, but I don't know what it is. This looks a little bit crazy, but damn it, I want something better. I think we're going to reach those people. And I think we're going to bring them into the fold. And it's not just going to be me. It's going to be a lot of communities. It's going to be the zombie squad. It's going to be frugal squirrels. It's going to be survival sports. It's going to be all of them together. All of these people that are doing it. It's going to be the permaculture schools. It's going to be you know all of these things that are working to bring people to a, an understanding that this consumeristic lifestyle is not the way to be anymore. That it's okay to have nice stuff. And it's okay to build wealth. And it's okay to be a strong person. But it's also important that we be strong as communities. That we be strong as individuals individuals that we be strong as families, that we put those three together. And I believe that we're, we're reaching a point that there was no way that I could have seen almost four years ago, because we're coming up on our fourth year anniversary. I think it's June 18th. It's either June 18th or June 20th. It's less than a month away, four years, four years. Four years ago, I climbed into my car with a $30 recorder and a beat-up old Plantronics headset. In fact, Four years ago, I climbed into my car with a recorder without a headset or a mic or anything and put it in my lap and did episode one. And if you go listen to it, it was terrible. But it was a promise that this would be something. 
and that I was going to be here and that I was going to make this work and that you could help me do it. And here it is. And I think when I look at the landscape in our country and I think of an old quote and it, it, it's almost hard for me to say because I, I, I so much don't want you to see this as me being arrogant because it's not me, it's us. But there's, I, I just think of these words for such a time as this. Think about that for a second. Think about all the things that you know that have gone wrong in this country. And think about the fact that there's 40,000 of us now. Four years, 40,000 strong and growing for such a time as this. It's a calling. It's not me calling you. It's not my calling. It's our calling as Americans. It's our calling to say, the line is here, to hither thou shalt come, and no further. This is the high tide line of oppression. We're done. There might be the occasional wave that leaps a little bit beyond that line, but like the waves, it will recede back, we'll push it back, we'll build a dam, we'll sump pump it out, we're done. We're done. We're going to take back our country, and we're going to start by taking back our lives. I look forward to another thousand episodes once we cross that bridge. We're 96 away. Make your calls. Again, the number for the testimonies for episode 1000, and I'll put links to the other two shows like it so you can get a feel for what it's like and how to do it. Uh, but the number, again, is 866 Six nine one fifty three fifty three, and if and you know go by the forum today. Take a look at the videos. If you still want to throw your hat in the ring for if I wanted to save America, uh, there's three videos there. They're all amazing. I'd love to see maybe one or two more come in by Sunday. Monday we'll start voting on them. The winner gets the hundred bucks. The winner gets a hundred bucks donated to Bella Ministries, and then we're going to go forward and we're going to push that and we're going to march on to episode one thousand. We're going to do Revolution two point oh. And we're going to send a very clear message. We're going to send a very clear message. And I'm going to tell you what it is. When I started this show, I was trying to send you guys a message. You're not alone. Well, you guys sent me a message. Same one back. You're not alone either. We're here too. Well, it's now time for us to take that message from one end of this country to the other ignoring all political boundaries and tell the person that's sitting there going I don't get this, this doesn't make sense this isn't right, I need to do something and I don't know what it is you're not alone either none of us are this is America and remember, America is not a place it's an idea and that idea can never be defeated and with that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow our There's a better way to do this. 